Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. If country borders and grids can fascinate you and state names intrigue you, if atlases, globes, city plans, subway maps, and of course, world maps are your thing, if you can name the capital city of Namibia, and if you get giddy about flags, you are in the right place. This is Map Corner, a podcast about the love of maps brought to you by Royfield Brown and Claire Asprey. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to Map Corner. I'm Royville Brown, who is 38 uh, degrees and 16 minutes north and 122 uh, degrees and 14 minutes west, which puts me in Vallejo, California. I, I've moved up, Claire. I've moved up uh, in the Bay Area and I'm now in the little town of Vallejo. And boy, oh boy, is it hot. Now, I've kind of let you into a little bit of a, it's not so much of a secret, but a thing here that I'm not doing this by myself. I said Claire. So yeah, I'm joined by that most punchy of co- co-hosts, it's Claire Asprey. Hello, Roy Are Field. you going to be less combative? Yeah, I'm going to be pleasant today. Great, because like, my inbox was deluged of people saying, bloody hell, Royford, you upset her. You know, what's up with our Claire? She was so nice, normally. Normal service has been resumed. Interestingly, right, I know that you are somebody who has uh, red hair. That's correct. And um, it's one of the themes of this week's show is that we're looking at human geography and human mapping. And one of the stereotypes thrown at you folks with red hair is that you are fiery. So are you fiery by nature? I really am not as a rule. I'm quite a placid, dull person, all things considered. (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, no, I'm I'm not that sort of dramatic, drama queen, feisty type as a rule. Well, I'm quite determined mm. um mm. and i not easily swayed if i've made my mind up so i don't know if that counts but then i'm not red 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 hair i'm more the strawberry blonde end so i'm you know i'm more oh, mellow right. okay mm-hmm. gotcha gotcha folks now you're probably wondering what the hell's going on here folks because this is map corner it's the podcast dedicated to the love of maps and all things cartophilic so if peters is your projection folks 
you're in the right place. And as I said before, today we're looking at human mapping and geography. Uh, Claire, what do we have on this week's show? So we have some responses from last month's show and we've got some queries and some comments about map ambiguity and uh, where to drive around. And we've got some a summary of some of the good stuff that people have been posting on the Facebook page and on the Twitter. So there's a great new way to join in and have a conversation about maps with fellow people from Map Corner. Uh, and that is the Flick app. Download it to your phone. You've got all of the conversations there. You can keep tabs on them with the notifications or if it all goes a bit crazy, you can turn the notifications off. Uh, so it is a bit more flexible like that. And um, we're finding for you know other podcasts, it's really working really well. And it'd be great to get our community up and running on Flick. At the moment, there's an opportunity to just come and say hello, show us where you are, send us a picture, um, but we'll get some discussion threads going on that app and uh, the link will be in the show notes and an introduction to flick oh yes our, our new app folks you know we're, we're on we're on the coming uh, up later google play store and the itunes store you know it's this the map corner is going places or has gone places what what tense should i use uh, going going future tense yeah great now uh folks we need you to call in to give us your questions and map-related trivia and geographic observations on SpeakPipe on mapcorner.space. It's a funny URL. It's mapcorner.space. Um, that's how this works. Another way you can actually help the show is by writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. And I know many people use other things. Uh, and, yes, write us a review there. But Apple Podcasts, Apple, formerly known as Apple iTunes, is the premier way to help to get this this podcast, this whole map-loving thing that we do here on the road. So write us a review. Um, it's like rocket fuel. Uh, so we're going to thank the people who have written us reviews. And we have 17 uh, fully-fledged reviews from all over planet Earth. Uh, so first off, I'd like to thank David T1011T. He's from the United States. We have Not At All Bard from the UK. Maurice Snell. He's also from the UK. In a reality, he's also from the UK. Uh, Petrarch1603 from the US. Again, from Blight, we have David from The Shed. Another British person, GWF2010. From Ireland, we have Florentine Gold. From the UK, Misty1980. From Canada, we have Not Contrary, who will be hearing from later. That's right. Uh, Elijah Fairfax in Ireland. Uh, Revo Buck from the UK. Sotal One in the United States. Our first reviewer from the Antipodes, it's uh, Sibylit121 from New Zealand. Uh, Kiss Cass the Dog, I don't know if that's an instruction or a name, uh, from the United <laughs> Kingdom. <laughs> More persons, he's also from the UK. And also Crazy Daisy Do. So thank you for your reviews. It means that more people get to know and hear about us on Apple Podcasts. So if you'd like to help out the podcast, why don't you do the self-same thing? Go to Apple Podcasts, write a review. Uh, tell us how wonderful you think Claire is and how great you think the show is and how I can just book my uh, my ideas up in general. <laughs> That'll all be good in the hood. Now, um, first off, we always start the show with an interview. And this one was kind of prompted by a map that I saw which absolutely uh, blew my skirt up. Uh, 
two maps. First off was the map of the distribution of blonde hair in Western Europe. And the reason why that map was just like so fascinating is because you can see the outlines of ancient countries. You can see the outline of the former Roman Empire. You can see the Dane law in the UK. You can see Normandy in France. And of course, Normandy is called Normandy because the Normans, the Vikings that went there. And to this day, there is a preponderance of more blonde hair in Normandy in France. So looking at that map was utterly fascinating. There's a sister map to that, which is the distribution of red hair, which, um, Came, which isn't so strong on country borders, but where some of the concentrations of red hair actually are in Western Europe, you wouldn't necessarily actually think, i.e. Russia. So um, we spoke to Erin LaRosa, who um, famously has red hair. She's a comedian. She's written a book about it. So here is my chat with her. Tell me about your cats. I've got two of them. One is named Fish and the other is named Chips. So maybe you'll appreciate that as a Brit. <laughs> Please tell me that at least one of your cats is a ginger moggy. What's a moggy? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Just a ginger cat. Every day that I spend in your wonderful country, um, I'll say something which is so quintessentially English. It's just within my DNA of speaking. Mm -hmm. And somebody says, what's that? And I'm, there's another one today, Moggy. Like you say to anybody a ginger right. Moggy, this is a ginger cat. Right. I didn't even realize that was a, a British expression. Yeah. So w neither of our cats are redheads, actually, which is very sad. Uh, oh, you know what? You are not so down for the cause of people with, uh, with red hair <laughs> as you like to uh, make out, and are you? <laughs> I need to be more supportive. You're right. So please tell me, Erin, why somebody wouldn't date you because of the color of your hair? Oh, well, I, yeah, so I actually wrote an essay about um, a time when someone basically said that they wouldn't date me because I have red hair. I think this mm. is probably a sentiment that a lot of ginger men have experienced as well, you know, because redheads aren't seen in pop culture all the time as sexy, you know, they're often the sidekick or they're kind of like the crazy vixen. Um, and for men, you really don't see men being portrayed as um, sexual very much uh, until Prince Harry. I feel like he's done a lot for the cause. But mm -hmm. I was at a party and, you know, I was flirting with a guy. He took my number. I thought things were going to go well. And he told me, actually, I, I don't date redheads. So thanks, but no thanks. But shouldn't you just have flirted harder? You just gave it too soon. Come on. Roy Field, you're right. You're right. That was on me. <laughs> and, and you know what? I don't know if I completely agree with your whole premise of your book. Oh, um, okay. Because Christina Hendricks, mm -hmm. you know. A fake redhead. Oh, okay. Does that change things? <laughs> <laughs> don't know. I don't know. All I know is that I can't think of a more attractive, well, no, I can't think of a more attractive woman. She just, to me, um, I'm just like, wow. And I didn't even realize it came out of a bottle. You know, maybe it's because mm -hmm. I'm a gentleman of color. Well, All you know, folks look the same to me. So I couldn't even see the difference. <laughs> <laughs> she has definitely said that she feels like she was supposed to be a redhead. So she's been mm. dyeing her hair red, I think, since she was a teenager. Actually, the same thing with Molly Ringwald, who is not a natural redhead. 
Um, you can probably hear my cat. So let me, <laughs> let me put her out. The thing about, uh, that, what you're talking about is that for women, there are different stereotypes than there are for men. So okay. for ginger women, one of the stereotypes we have about us is kind of that we're sex pots. So if you look at Christina Hendricks and her role on Mad Men, she is like the quintessential sex pot. And I think no one would deny that. Like what you said, like you can't think well, of a sexier person, right? Well, I think I said I can't think of a more attractive woman. And then okay. I was going to like pause because I have a big thing for Jennifer Lopez. But, you know, <laughs> but I would, but I would hold doesn't? her. I'm gonna, exactly. Um, but I'm going to hold her up in kind of that level of kind of like attractiveness. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I would, right? Whoever yeah. I'm with, every partner I've been with in the last 15 years, I've always said, if I ever meet Jennifer Lopez, you just give me a pass. <laughs> Full stop. <laughs> Things are going to happen. Right. But I'm trying to understand, right, how mm-hmm. there are certain elements as being a heterosexual guy somebody of color but has grown up in a western country in a western mm-hmm. culture that i would actually agree that in terms of just physical appearance the only acceptable form of insult for the way that somebody looks is to go fire crotch or mm-hmm. to say that you're a ginger and that to be a, a can be derogatory right exactly yeah it, um that's something i talk about in my book a lot is just you know um the fact that those are acceptable things to, to sling at people. And I've definitely heard all of those and more uh, growing up. And um, I think part of it is that it is quote unquote, just a hair color. So a lot Mm. of people will say, well, you can dye it if you don't like it. But it's not just a hair color, is it? Uh, Because generally what's associated with red hair is paler skin, Mm. maybe freckles. Mm -hmm. And, And I think in the UK, it's associated with with Celtic people. Mm-hmm. So um, with people coming from Wales or Ireland or the far reaches of Scotland. There's an amazing map, which is the distribution in Europe of red hair. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you see those Celtic fringes. But kind of interestingly as well, genetically, do you know where your, where your forebears came from? So, um, yeah, I am actually Irish. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people will assume if you have red hair, you're from, from Ireland or Scotland. Scotland has the largest population of redheads. Um, I believe it's 13% that they have are, are redheads. But what? yeah, I know. Um, I think that's like a common misconception. But, you know, in my research, I was trying to figure out like, you know, where did red hair come from? Like what, where did it actually originate? And you know, what we found was that actually it originated in uh, Central Asia, which is kind Mm -hmm. of interesting. All kind of like hair color, skin color is fundamentally a mutation. And your mutation is Mm -hmm. only held by 1% of the world's population. So you're like like a a superhero, like an X-Men, aren't you? (laughs) In a good way, in a good way. And actually, Jean Grey, the most powerful Mm -hmm. X-Men, is actually a redhead. That's right. I don't know what what that says. I don't know what that says. You're totally right. I like to view us as uh, superhero mutants as well, especially because the gene you're talking about, MC1R, is a mutation. So we are Mm. technically mutants. And there are physical things that actually make us different than everyone else, which is really interesting. Run through those and then tell me how you've noticed that in your life. 
So what are these things that make yeah. you different? So I actually, in my uh, in my book, the Big Redhead book, we have a whole list of superpowers, and I'll go through those for you. Mm-hmm. Um, we can make vitamin D in our bodies uh, at a faster rate than normal people. Mm-hmm. So, which might sound like, okay, what, well, what's the big deal? But because red hair was so concentrated in these Northern European climates, it was actually a survival advantage that we were able to make vitamin D in our bodies and we didn't have to go outside if we didn't need to. Uh, so maybe. I, I think you're talking about vitamin D, but, but, yes. but, but, but let's go on. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for correcting me there, Roy. Um, we can sense hot and cold faster than everyone else so we Mm. know when winter is coming our bodies can actually sense those changes so do you think that you should be on the night's watch guard (laughs) in game of thrones because like the whole thing is like winter is coming and you guys are going to have a head start and all of that aren't you Jon snow should have been Mm -hmm. redhead i mean think about egret right the wildlings they're definitely Uh able to yes she had red hair that's right I don't know if George R. R. Martin figured that out, but he must have sensed it. Uh-huh. Um, and then some other fun things. We require 20% more anesthesia during surgery. I've definitely felt that. Um, mm. And as well as uh, anesthesia at the dentist, we, we need more than everyone else. So I know for me, like I've got to get about five shots of Novocaine before I actually feel numb. So. Up until that point, you guys absolutely did sound like like superheroes. Like you're, you're, t- you're taking in sunlight and you can like do stuff with it in your body and process it faster. Mm-hmm. But basically, you're weak, aren't you? Okay. Is that the reason why you've never had a redhead as heavyweight champion of the world? Well, okay, let me just counter this, Royfield, by also mm-hmm. throwing out this bizarro fact. Um, mm-hmm. Painkillers work better on redheads, so we actually feel them more than everyone else. So we get high probably off of pain meds more than everyone else, which is kind of cool. You know what? So maybe we get some credit back. You you you, you get a little modicum of credit. Back. <laughs> Thank you, get you a right, credit back. So okay. So you guys are only 1% of the world's population. Mm-hmm. If you look at a distribution map of where you are, you're in the uh, the fringes, the northern fringes of Europe. Um, where the mutation first developed was Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us about growing up in America yeah. with red hair. Tell oh, us, boy. tell us about those, <laughs> those rejections from those jocks. Tell us about those those barbs from from those other girls. <laughs> I I've heard it's very different from growing up in the UK with red hair, um, where it's probably more prevalent. But I grew up in Florida, which is a very special part of the US. You've probably heard some Listen. weird stories out of Florida. Well, when I came to America five years ago, um, I was potentially going to either move to Florida mm. or the Bay Area. Every American said, don't even think about Florida. <laughs> it's, all, it's all weird down there. It is weird. And just to correct something which you said before, I don't think, at least when I was growing up, um, us Brits... Uh, particularly are that kind to our ginger brethren you know no, you know no. the expression ginger minge is mm-hmm. quite a crutch it's exactly the same and that is not meant as a term of endearment you know, no so. and actually in my uh, in my research i found a lot of stories of kids in the uk who had to bring lawsuits against their schools for not protecting them against bullying there was a mm-hmm. whole family in the uk who you know, was basically forced to leave the town that they were in because they were being bullied so much. And the judge had told them to just dye their hair. So 
Oh, a little different, a little different. But growing up in Florida, I think what was mm-hmm. interesting for me is that I, you know, like a lot of redheads, I have pale skin. And mm-hmm. so Florida is all about the beach. It's very sunny. And so being a redhead with pale skin certainly made me stand out. I, I didn't look like um, a lot of the blonde tan girls that, that I went to school with, uh, which, you know, made me a lot of fun at parties when I had to wear a shirt and pants over my bathing suit so that I wouldn't mm-hmm. get a sunburn. But, you know, it just kind of meant that I became what I like to call an indoor cat. So I didn't go out as much as the other kids. Um, but it certainly shaped me in that I think redheads, a lot of redheads develop really great senses of humor because you kind of have to, because no matter where you are, you're going to be teased because you look different because you are different. And a lot of times you might be the only redhead in a room. So that makes you stand out. And as we all know, kids love making fun of things that are different. Mm hmm. Absolutely. So how did you having red hair manifest itself when you're an adolescent? I'm presuming, you know, the hormones are starting <laughs> to race. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're looking over at boys or girls, whoever you're attracted to and whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one thing to be seven or eight and have red hair and a little bit of teasing. But mm-hmm. tell me about the adolescent you and the, uh, you know, when you're, you're starting to realise that, you know, there's a little tingle you get in special bits of your body <laughs> and, and that itch needs scratching. <laughs> I think that's a really great question because it is different when you're a redhead. I mean, for one thing, I was the only person I knew who had people talking about my pubic hair. You know, I didn't really see my uh, blonde or brunette friends getting getting uh, nicknames for their pubes. I, I openly mm-hmm. got called fire crotch. And I remember... Uh, the first... uh, it's quite it's quite interesting there, Erin. That mm-hmm. in, whilst talking about your pubes, dare I say, you says you were openly uh, 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 mocked, and uh, all of a sudden, a whole load of images was flew into my mind. <laughs> now I'm so I'm so sorry, but let, let's keep let's keep this conversation above the waist, um, mm-hmm. ethically, mm-hmm. if not uh, talking about uh, the description of you below the waist. I'm I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> I mean, you know, looking back again, it's it's funny now, but I remember mm-hmm. very distinctly I was running for um, student council and mm-hmm. giving a speech and my class was in the auditorium and just this guy screaming out fire crotch in the middle of my speech. And I was so horrified and I didn't know what to do. And I just kind of kept going. <laughs> But, but do you get his vote, though? That's the question. Um, that's a that's something I'm going to have to circle back with him on when we have a <laughs> class reunion. Did you end up voting for me? Um, but, you know, like I think I came about during a time when there were movies like American Pie coming out, which had mm-hmm. this actress, Alison Hannigan, who was one of the first, you know, redheads who were my age that I had seen on screen. And she was like sex crazed in that movie you know, went to band camp and put a flute in her, you know, fill in the blank. And so I feel like actually men would associate me with that character or with characters they had seen on TV, because maybe that was the only other redhead they had seen and it was falling into a stereotype. But I did have guys ask me like, oh, are you like that chick in uh, American Pie? So it just, you know, really forced me to kind of have to address my sexuality in a way that other girls my age probably didn't because people were curious whether it was about my pubic hair or about how I might be in the bedroom. It was just something that people fixated on. Now, 
we're in the confines. We're in a very safe space, you and I. Right? <laughs> I feel safe. You know, there's only a couple of thousand people listening to this. So <laughs> do you play up to that stereotype? Are you actually a total sex pot in mm. bed? I mean, I guess you'd have to ask my husband that. That's a great question. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I, you, you must have an inkling. You well, must have an inkling. You know, I, what, what I will say is um, red on the head, fire in the bed is a saying for a reason, okay? And if you haven't heard that saying, then you're welcome. <laughs> Boom. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some truth to, uh, the, to the stereotype then. Of course. That's kind of where I was going with all of that. <laughs> well, I think sometimes people lean into certain stereotypes. Like the other stereotype that I remember getting a lot is that we had fiery tempers. It was sort of like, mm. ooh, don't make her mad. <laughs> She's going to really blow up at you. And so sometimes if I had gotten too mad at something, I would be like, oh, yeah, well, you know, my hair, you know, I'm fiery. So, you know, trying to kind of get away with something. Um, but I think it made me a little more... Uh, like I, I felt like I could be more assertive because people almost expected that from me. And I think in the bedroom, part of what you're talking about is like, well, you know, if people expect you to be a certain way, maybe it gives you a little more freedom to explore that because you don't have anything holding you back, really. Mm. You know, I think it's interesting how the depiction of redheads does kind of warp and weft. Um, mm-hmm. So... Gabriella uh, Rossi um, and I kind of Gabrielle Rossi, sorry, the mm. pre-Raphaelite painter has two or three paintings of beautiful mm-hmm. uh, women who are redheads. Right. And then when when I grew up at my, at my mother's knee, we used to watch black and white movies, and 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 for me, the ideal of femininity that I'm attracted to is actually a 1940s star starlet i love a demi wave i you know big thick red lipstick mm-hmm. that type of look for me when i was five or six was written into my pre-sexuality is this is what an attractive woman actually is so for me rita rita hayworth has yes. always been an amazingly beautiful woman and there was a period in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s where having red hair and being seen as attractive, those two things were not necessarily anti each other. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think Rita Hayworth is such a great example. Uh, something I found out that I, I didn't know was that, mm-hmm. you know, she she was a fake redhead, but she had oh, no. dyed her hair red to to seem more sexual. And to your point of those, like, Raphaelite paintings, like, those, mm. those were often featuring redheads, just to grab attention, to kind of like grab someone's attention when they were walking past something. And that color red is so Mm. vibrant and different that it does catch the eye. So it was used in paintings a lot and became associated with kind of like highly sexualized women. But for Rita Hayworth, I didn't know that atomic bombs were were often uh, named after one of her movies uh, because it was like a sign of like, Oh, an explosion, like a fiery explosion. Uh, so people mm-hmm. really associated her with sexuality. So you're not alone. Goodness. It's amazing when you're five and six, what you can actually pick up and whatever. And it doesn't <laughs> quite ever, ever, ever leave you. Um, you're a redhead. You're from a historically an Irish family. You're an Irish American. Mm-hmm. I'm presuming mom and dad probably have 
flame red hair. Ditto your grandparents. All of you <laughs> are like, you know, somewhat pale, freckled, can't go out in the sun. And, <laughs> You're and, and painting that's quite a picture. <laughs> Well, what's Thank funny you. is actually, so my last name is La Rosa, which is Italian. So my dad is Italian. No, um, no, stop it. Stop it. There is no, <laughs> when I saw that on your email, I just thought, well, okay. All right. This is like, <laughs> that, that, you seriously telling me you were born with that as a surname? Yes, that is my real name, if you can believe it. And it does mean, you know, in Italian, the rose. And when we looked into like, where the meaning of that came from, um, it actually did come from this idea of like a beautiful red haired woman in this Italian village. So it's actually a feminine last name for, for um, Italians, but neither of my parents are redheads, uh, but my so, grandparents so are. Let me just kind of, kind of understand, because, you, you know, you've, you've, you've done the work, you've done, got the book and stuff. Red hair is recessive. Yeah, so it can be. So basically in my book, I, I did kind of like a percentage calculator of like, what are the odds of you having a redhead baby? Um, so a lot of people carry the gene for red hair and they don't know it until they mm-hmm. have a child. And then it's, oops, what happened? Um, so neither of my parents are redheads, but they both carry the gene. So to get a redhead kid, both mm-hmm. parents have to carry the gene. And if one of them doesn't, you will not have a redheaded child. If you're looking at someone like my parents, they had a 25% chance of getting a redhead, which they got me. And also they got my brother who's a redhead too. So they won the lottery twice, basically. (laughs) So tell us the name of this wonderful book. So the book is called The Big Redhead Book. You can find it on Amazon uh, at booksellers near you. There's a Kindle version. There's a hardcover version. So there's everything that you can get. And you know what we haven't done? I haven't even asked you because we the same. We came so casually into this conversation about talking about talking about your cats. What, is it, what exactly do you actually do for a living? So I other than being a professional advocate for, for red hair, with red hair, yeah. I'm a writer. I uh-huh. um, this is the second book I've written. I'm working on my third, and I'm also writing a screenplay. So I'm one of those LA cliches of like writing and working from coffee shops and doing a lot of freelance gigs on the side. Obviously, you were blessed uh, with having red hair. So you, you were always destined to write this book. But yeah. what, what was the final thing which you said to yourself, I need to put this down in print? You know, I think my mom inspired me a little bit because when we were growing up, she did not expect to get redheaded children. And she even asked my dad, where did this come from? She didn't know what was going on. <laughs> you know, I think she really made a big deal of trying to help us feel like we were represented in things, you know, there weren't really red haired Barbie dolls or anything like that. So I ended up with like a lot of red haired antique dolls. She really tried to make me feel like I was being seen. I I really wrote this in part for her because she made me feel accepted. She made me feel like I had a community, even though she didn't have red hair. And growing up, I really feel strongly that redheads really look out for each other. When I see another redhead, I often will say hello. Even if they're a stranger, I'll nod, I'll acknowledge them. So I think redheads, even though we're 1% of the population, and if you're looking at a map, you're not seeing us in every place. When we do see each other, I think we really act as family because we realize how rare our hair color is. And I wanted to write this book for that family and I wanted to kind of create a sense of community. 
Well, Erin Larosa, thank you for coming on to Map Corner and explaining what it's like to be, I was going to say cursed, but after after speaking to you, <laughs> definitely blessed definitely with blessed. having flame-coloured hair. <laughs> thank you so much. Hi, it's Claire here with my found postcard from Singapore. So, before I came to Singapore, the thing that I was expecting was a very vibrant, urban place. And I did find that. Uh, But the thing that's really surprised me being here is the kind of lush vegetation, really, the way that the trees and flowers are incorporated into not just the kind of roadside verges and some of the more obvious places that you'd expect perhaps to see that stuff which you know uh, you would get in many places but um, really integrating the plants into the whole sections of the city Uh, there are a lot of little pedestrian bridges over the roads where They're quite often sort of dripping with flowers. Some amazing orchids here as well. And, um, you know, all the way from inside the airport when we first arrived, there was sort of a massive planted area which felt like a bit of a jungle. And then these amazing trees, which I've managed to not find the name for. I've looked up, I can't work out what it is, but on all the road from the airport into the rest of the city, these beautiful, beautiful trees which sort of start with a load of different trunks coming out from the base. They're quite short, but they sort of spread wide. They're just really pretty. They look really good for climbing, although obviously you can't do that when you're zipping by in a taxi. And um, and even within uh, within the city, and certainly the new parts, where they're really, you know, there's this amazing building where they've kind of built greenery into the levels of this huge high-rise building. So. The thing that I will take away from Singapore as a really strong impression is not so much the built environment, which is what I was expecting, but the kind of living uh, natural environment, um, which I'm sure is pretty well um, kind of looked after. It's not it's not wild particularly, but it's really lovely to see how where the planting's all over the place and it's starting to sort of take back bits of the. Um, uh, concrete and so on, certainly under sort of flyovers and so on, you know, you've got the creepers cr- like going up the concrete stands of the flyovers like it's going to take over the road at some point, I'm sure it won't, but um, yeah, it's just, it's not manicured and controlled exactly, it feels really vibrant and natural and yet it's, you know, clearly got a role to play and when I was uh, in a taxi in the centre, the taxi driver was saying that the amount of trees helped to keep the air clean, which, you know, I'm willing to believe. So um, that's clearly uh, a way of pro- a forward for lots of places with um, a lot of kind of urban uh, air pollution, which would be, lov- be lovely to think that everywhere could be quite as verdant, although I think it probably helps to be right on the equator with a sort of warm, humid climate. Uh, so uh, I'm sure uh, the kind of plants that grow there don't grow everywhere. I don't think we could replicate all of that back in the UK. But, um, yeah, it was just like the jungle was taking the place back in some ways 
in certain places and that they really value the green space like it's not it's a really integral part of what their built environment means um, so that was really inspiring and I will definitely remember the trees and the flowers and the colours of that as part of my trip to Singapore. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, that was right. Fascinating, Claire. Um, so you, you really recommend Singapore, then? Most interesting breakfast buffet I've ever seen. That's for sure. Um, <laughs> because it's a place where people go from all, like, all corners of the earth and often pass through there on long-haul flights and stop over, uh, they know mm-hmm. how to cater for literally all different types of cuisines. Uh, which was uh, quite an interesting one. And I didn't get to see very much. I was only there 48 hours. So um, it was very much a whistle-stop tour. And I could barely get my daughter to leave the hotel room. So um, it was not like I was out and about pounding all of the tourist routes. But it was a really interesting place. And I would be interested to go back and see some of it in a bit more detail. I'm utterly fascinated um, about Singapore. I've, I've never been. I've never been first off. And I'm fascinated by it because of its economic growth and how they've used human capital. Geographic location, admittedly, um, to be a log- fundamentally is a logistics hub, but then, but fundamentally, then have used its human capital as its value proposition. And I read a really scary statistic. Well, sc- scary if you are of Jamaican heritage, as I am. Um, in 1958. Uh, the GDP of Jamaica, which has a population now of about 3 million. And I presume round about then, you know, obviously a little bit less, but, you know, round about the same. Um, The GDP of Jamaica was exactly the same as Trinidad and also of Singapore in 1958. And now, uh, because of the semi, well, not even semi, because of um, authoritarian benevolent dictatorship, and uh, strict adherence to classic uh, liberal 
capitalism, Singapore is a first world economy of some heft. You know, it is what seven times uh, the GDP of of Jamaica, and it utterly floored me when I read that. And there is, uh, and there, there are many uh, stories in in the world of that level of economic growth post war. I think you have South Korea, um, maybe Taiwan, and then it is Singapore. You know, and um, but the um, you get into somewhat tricky territory um, as to if you're going to try and follow the Singaporean economic model because what it means for democracy, which is somewhat clear, of an apt link for us, um, really to talk about <laughs> motorways. So why don't we go to our first caller, right? And here is Kieran and his question. Hello, 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 Matt Corner. My name's Kieran. I'm calling from Birmingham in the UK. And one thing I've been wondering is that I used to spend a lot of time, like a lot of time, in the back of my dad's car as a little kid, driving from Birmingham to London, from London to Birmingham, bored out of my brain. But something I've always taken for granted is the fact that our country has a motorway system and pretty much any country that I go to also has some sort of motorway system. But out of curiosity, which was the first country to actually implement a motorway system? Was it the UK or was it somewhere else? Thanks. Bye. Mm. Do you want to lead in with this, Claire? Because I know we, we both had to do a little bit of research here and both of us were both of us were surprised with the answer. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to say I love that Kieran has called us up rather than just Google the question because that's brilliant. It's nice to have that conversation. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, then we can Google the question. Uh, so, yeah, so... Here's the thing. There's not there's a lot not to like about fascism, but if it's one thing it can do, it's deliver a motorway. So uh <laughs> it was a uh, race fast race to the finish, uh but um actually Mussolini beat Hitler on the whole motorway race and uh the Italian motorways, the Autostrada, were the first out there. Uh they already had four thousand kilometers built in the twenties before Hitler barely got going. So uh they were the first and then the Germans followed on soon after. And actually, the Americans and the British didn't really kick off their motorway programs until the 1950s. Although I did look up uh, when the first motorways were in Canada. And if you count the Queen Elizabeth Way, which you might know, because I think it goes near your pad in Canada. It does. Um, it does. That was yeah. 1931. So uh, they were quite really? early on as well. I must admit, I had no idea about uh, the QEW. And I just presume that the QEW was Queen Elizabeth II. But if it was 1931, it's not named after her. Yeah, I think maybe they named it. I don't know, actually. It's a good point. But it was kicked off. Mm. Yeah, it was kicked off there. It comes as no surprise, but the whole kind of colonial echoes abound when you travel down that road because there is a Trafalgar uh, exit. Then there is Churchill uh, as an exit, um, you know, Winston Churchill Boulevard or something or another, you know, you, you can literally be traveling down that and think, you know, okay, you're on the wrong side of the road, but like you are, you know, kind of back in England because of all, all the kind of like place names and the exits when you're on the QEW. Um, but the, the interesting thing being over here in California is, of course, um, 
the national system of interstate and defence highways, otherwise known as the interstate highway system, which on the East Bay, um, there's a lot of them going up and down. And as you kind of said, it started in the 1950s. It was under Dwight Eisenhower. And he basically implemented this. He's got one of the key drives of his presidency. Obviously, he got the post-war boom in the United States. And everybody has a car. And it's seen as a key symbol of American might but and also freedom. But the reason why he really pushed for um, the interstate highway system or freeway system is because I think I think it's the 1920s. So it's before it's after the First World War, definitely before the Second World War. He had to travel from east to west whilst he was a member of the military. And it took him forever. And he said back then, crumbs, say if we get invaded by the Japanese, how the hell are we going to be able to move our tanks and our infrastructure from one side of the country to another? So key in the American interstate system is defence. And the full title is the Dwight D. Eisenhower National System for Interstate and Defence Highways. For him, yes, this is going to help commerce, this is going to help your average citizen to get from state to state, but also it's a military thing. Yeah. Oh, the loop, the routes were suggested by General Pershing. Ah, I didn't know that. Yeah, the Pershing map is uh, out there. The roads that the routes that he recommended, which was very much about military strategy and and you know protecting key military locations. There is a crazy just 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 on on my on my mind. Um, there is, you can kind of Google this, and I forget what it's called. I'm going to say it's called Code Red, but I think that's, that's kind of wrong. Up until the 1930s, there were military plans for the United States to invade Canada, but also for the British in Canada to invade the United States. And you just think to yourself, you know, it just sounds bonkers considering this is literally just a few years before World War II. But there used to be forts all along the US and Canadian border. And those forts only really came down after, uh, in the late 30s and then after the Second World War. And it's just kind of crazy to think that as, as relatively recently as that, and I know it's a long time ago now, but um, this, lo- you know, what's the longest land border in the world? That actually it was a military border. So you can, you know, you can have that mindset of, you know, an Eisenhower in the 1930s thinking um, the majority of our infrastructure is on the east coast. Say if the Japanese invade on the west coast, but also what about those pesky Brits, Ford slash Canadians? You know, say if they decide to come through Detroit or something or another. So having this integrated federal highway infrastructure was absolutely vital for American uh, for American defence needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we came somewhat late to the party. Um, the yep. late end of the fifties. First 50s. British motorway. What do you reckon? Uh, uh, well, I didn't know that it was actually the Preston Bypass. But that's what Google, uh, yeah. no, that's power of, the, power of the Google. I thought power it was Google. the M1, M1A1, but it actually was uh, now part of the M6, which is actually the first bit. But it was the M1, wasn't it? Was the first M1 was one the first you... one, yeah. And it's not called the M1 because 
it was the first one. Um, as anyone who's a bit of a nerd about British road system numbering would know, but might not be well known in the rest of the international audience here, um, mm-hmm. that the in England the road system split by a bit of a clock face. So everything from twelve o'clock to three o'clock is road name numbers beginning with one. Uh, so north to south is the M1, and that's the M1. Uh, and also in that space, you have the M11. And then from the three o'clock to six o'clock space, that's the uh, number two road numbers. The M2 sits in that space. And then in the six to nine o'clock, you've got the M3. The M4 runs east-west, and that runs along roughly the nine o'clock line. And that's the M4. And then everything inside the between back between the M4 and the M1 is broadly road numbers beginning with four. I did not know that. Do you know that? Hence the A14, which is a big link road, which goes north, which goes east-west, but connects Felixstowe mm. Port in the east to the edge of the M6. It's sort of between the one and the four because it goes east-west, but it also joins from across. I knew that they were kind of numbered in clusters and that one doesn't mean one and that necessarily that next to the M1, you have the, like the M11, the M10, etc. But I didn't know that it went in a, a clock-like manner. It sort of goes around the clock, although then the M5 mm-hmm. goes broadly Birmingham to the southwest, doesn't it? So that comes sort of down, sort of diagonally down, and then the M6 goes mm. up up from the north. So there must be a point where five and six come in because then roads beginning with seven and eight are in Scotland. Yeah. So there is no roads beginning with – so the M8 is in Glasgow, isn't it, I think? Um, so those those roads, there's, there's nothing beginning with seven or eight in the whole of England. Mm. Um, it's interesting you mentioned uh, my hometown of Birmingham there uh, because there were plans as early as 1923 – for there to be a motorway-like road from London to Birmingham. But it was some 26 years before the Special Roads Act came in in 1949, which allowed for the construction of roads limited to specific vehicle classifications. And looking at the map of the M1, it kind of, to me, doesn't make sense that that was the first one that was done because you've got, obviously, you've got to start the motorway in London. That, that's taken as a given. If you're talking about just population centres. But then you've got Birmingham 110, 20 miles away. And then literally in a straight line, then you've got Manchester and Liverpool. You'd have thought that the M6, M1, as we kind of understand it, would have come first because you're going to, you know, you're going to connect a whole lot of population centres first. I don't know what the thinking was, really. Um, Poor. That's what the thinking was, Claire. Poor. Yeah. Where where, where does the M1 run? Like, in those days, where was the next biggest place on the M1? Leicester? Well. Uh, Northampton? You see, these, exactly. You know, these, you know, what are you going to go to Northampton for? For for shoes, for boots? And then Leicester, crisps, and then it just peters out. Nottingham? In Leeds. Sheffield? But when you've got real cities, if you go Birmingham, Liverpool, Manchester, <laughs> you know, cities with some economic and industrial heft about them, you know. But anyway, yeah. anyway, so hmm. just, as, just as a slight footnote to this, um, as, I, as I kind of mentioned earlier on, obviously I've got Jamaican parentage, so I spend I spent um, a certain amount of time in Jamaica. And... Um, there is now um, a motorway system in Jamaica, a highway system, two lanes either way, 
really good roads. Uh, on the north coast of Jamaica, it was built by the Chinese. Uh, I think it was a Chinese government. It's part of this Chinese largesse in the developing world just to say, right, we're going to build you something. What do you want building? And it is little China when they come over. They don't employ local workers. Um, this is, you know, they come with Chinese engineers, Chinese construction workers, and they build it and then they disappear. Uh, though, interestingly, the second bit, so and this is on the north coast. So this is basically connects all the tourist resorts fundamentally. And there are a little town called Ocherias, which is uh, kind of two thirds of the way along the north coast. Um, there's another bit of the uh, of the motorway system which is actually built by Argentinian money and and it sweeps down from the north coast in, into Kingston. And for somebody who's been to Jamaica a lot and those roads are incredibly windy because what a lot of people don't realise about Jamaica is the hinterland of Jamaica is actually very hilly and mountainous. Hence, we've got a blue mountain coffee. So the fact that you had a major commercial arterial route and it was one lane in either way, and you went round and round in circles going up these hills and down. It was just kind of ridiculous. And um, through, with Argentinian money, they've managed to start to blast away through some kind of mountain there and create this um, uh, rather swish kind of highway. Mm. Well, they're taking their two from the original of Italians then because lots of the Italian motorways run through tunnels. Mm. And have you ever travelled from let's south of France into northern Italy? So let's say kind of Nice, Monaco into like Genoa. Have you ever done that trip? Holy camoli. I once drove, I've done it two or three times now. I once drove uh, from London to Rome uh, to, to visit a friend and I thought, you know what, instead of jumping on a plane, I'm actually going to drive because I want to see France, I want to see Northern Italy. And it was a glorious trip. But you cannot help but just be amazed by human engineering and ingenuity through the Alps. Because one minute you're going through a tunnel, then all of a sudden you're on a massive bridge and you feel like you're a thousand foot up from, from, from the drop. And you're just going along in a, in a straight line. But it is, uh, it, it's utterly spectacular. And you wonder how Hannibal, 2,000 years before, beforehand, ever got his elephants through this, seriously. Because it is just an utter, like, it's spectacular now. But we've got, you know, uh, boring instruments to be able to drill and blast holes through through uh, through sheer rock and whatever. And it's just it's so spectacular. It's so beautiful. And as I said, it's just a marvel of human engineering. And to think that, you know, 2000 years previous, some some bloke and an army and a bunch of elephants went up and down those mountains and whatever, then got to the other side and still kicked hell out of the Romans. It is just it just you can't get your head around it. But anyway, uh, so there's your answer, Kieran. Uh, Mussolini, the fascists know how to not only subjugate people, get the trains to run on time. Yeah, get the trains to run on time, but also they they build motorways and they and they do a pretty good job. Uh, uh, show note: this show does not endorse fascism. Just pointing that out there. But we, we're trying to be as fair as we can, and that's where our fairness ends. Other than that, they're a rum lot, they're a bad lot, and we don't have any truck with them. So, uh, so the answer is Italy, and um, and that's that. So the next call. Is um, is you go? Let's let's have a bit of Mary next because she's replying to another listener's query on last month's show. Hello, Matt Corner. I'm Mary. I live in Toronto, and I'm not contrary on Twitter. 
and I'm answering Nicole's question about the best places for food in Europe. And I think it really comes down to whether you're looking for breadth or depth of experience. Um, Royfield talked about countries that have very strong food cultures like Italy. Even there, it's not a monolith. I mean, depending on where you are in the country, is it butter or olive oil? Is it bread or potatoes or pasta? Um, there's lots of different uh, kinds of Italian food uh, influenced by the different cultures and languages around the boot of Italy. Um, I particularly like the Emilia-Romagna region uh, and Bologna, the main city there, uh, which is considered by many Italians to be the sort of food centre, the gastronomic centre for Italy, because that's where you'll find Parma ham, Parmesan cheese, balsamic vinegar, um, fantastic uh, farming collectives that produce amazing produce and wine. Um, if you're looking, so for depth, then I think, you know, getting to really know a food culture in a city like that. Um, and the same would be true of Paris as well, where you could try all different kinds of French regional cuisine. Um, I would also say, though, if you're looking for breadth, you know, Royfield talked about cities like London and New York, where you've got lots of immigrants. But remember that, that what you're having there will be filtered or, or affected by the taste of the established population and also the economic means of those immigrants. So, for example, I'm from the UK originally, um, and the Indian food that you'll find in the UK is very different in Canada um, because you know the, the people serving that food are from different parts of India or, or even Pakistan or Bangladesh. Um, so they're different um, routes that they're bringing to either the UK, Canada, United States or, or other countries, and so you'll find different things. Um, also, in cities like London and New York, as commercial rents continue to rise, then uh, you'll find that the sort of the the newly arrived foods will be at the margins, will be in the, the suburbs rather than right downtown um, where there's a lot more gentrification going on. Um, and I think in cities you do get some interesting hybrids. Um, so I'm thinking of the very famous Polish-Mexican restaurant in London in Shepherd's Market. Uh, here in Toronto we have a Hungarian-Thai combination in Kensington Market. Uh, in some cases, things like this are husband and wife teams, um, you know, the sushi rito, the sushi burrito hybrid is a big trend right now. So, so that's also another thing to think about. I would also say, um, uh, you know, I'm a vegetarian and that's actually led to some great food experiences for me in unexpected places. Uh, I would say the best meal I ever had was in France. It was a fantastic little restaurant in Nice, uh, that was entirely vegetarian. And I had a fantastic meal in Madrid because the chef heard we were vegetarian and just wanted a challenge. You know, his his special for the night was all about the ham. But he said, OK, I have these ingredients. I'll make this thing for you. And it was fantastic. So just go with an open mind and, and have lots of fun. OK, goodbye. Crumbs. She's eaten around the world. That, she that's has. an excellent call. And actually, that leads quite well into uh, one of the threads on our Facebook group. Uh, so you might want to rethink this at this point and do that one last and then we'll segue, segue into oh. the Facebook oh, group. Oh, no, let, let, let's play loosey-goosey. Let's just throw it in here now. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, that leads really well into one of the discussion threads on the Facebook group because after last month's episode where we had the query about where the best places to eat are, uh, we had a number of recommendations come in. Um, and I would say, broadly speaking, uh, although those recommendations ranged around Europe and the world, broad, you know, France came out as the most recommended places in France mm. or France as a whole. So um, 
you know, it does have a reputation for food culture and um, it did have the most recommendations, although um, Scotland did all right and uh, parts of Britain as well. I struggled. I, I wanted to put things on that map and I thought that's actually an excellent idea, Claire, to create uh, maps around recommendation and points of interest. But I'm obviously an idiot. I couldn't get it to work. I was trying to pin things to it and it just wasn't having it. So I don't know what the heck I was doing wrong. I think if you put the name of something in that Facebook recognised, it automatically knew who it was. Mm. I think. Maybe that's what it is. And maybe I just need to spend a little bit more time with it. But it's the type of thing which is absolutely perfect for people to um, collaborate uh, with as a group with us as a group and we can actually embed those into the map corner.space website as well so you don't just have to be a facebook person to be able to see those recommendations and and maybe kind of every other podcast we should do something like that which we actually ask people for their recommendations and stuff on various different topics and create maps uh, accordingly mm-hmm Mm-hmm, indeed. But anyway, Claire, I'm oh, sorry. But anyway, Mary, uh, thank you uh, for that most excellent, uh, of, of course. And uh, boy, oh boy, I tell you what, if I'm going to dine out anywhere around the world, I'm going to ask Mary uh, where I should go. Uh, now, so that's Mary, that's Kieran. And now we have Hamish. And um, hmm, do you remember a couple of shows ago, I was very definitive with uh, my categorizations of the amount of countries that you've been to. Yes. Well, yeah. Hamish somewhat puts a cat amongst the pigeons. He knows what he's talking about. Here he is. Hi, I'm Hamish, and I'm calling from 43.66 North and 79.35 West. First of all, thank you for this wonderful podcast. I love discovering that other people feel the same way about maps as I do. I know you've given up having callers identify themselves by the number of countries they've been to, but in the process of thinking about my list and I suppose my number, uh, and your rule that only countries with seats in the UN count, it led me to think about how great maps can convey ambiguity. One of the first things which drew me to maps was the idea of, of the world divided up in a regular, ordered, and standardized way. But as I've gotten older, I'm not only more aware of ambiguity and exceptions, but enjoy them and seek them out. Which brings me to the number of countries I've been to. Oh, mo- most maps, it would be 36 or 37 if the map marks northern Cyprus as its own country. But under your strict rules, it would be only 32 or possibly even 31. The last time I visited was Switzerland in 2001, a full year before they became a member of the UN, and therefore wouldn't count. Beyond that, none of the Vatican, Taiwan, or the Palestinian territories are members of the UN, but all appear on most maps of the world. For me, a great map is either so well designed or has footnotes so that exceptions and oddities are clearly communicated. A map that makes easy to tell that Taiwan is not a country like, say, the Philippines, but actually an alternative government of China entering its eighth decade in exile, or that when I visited Hong Kong in 1992, it may have been British, but it certainly wasn't part of the UK and definitely wasn't part of the PRC either. The world is endlessly complex and fiercely resists regularization, but the best maps revel in that complexity. Thank you. Mm. Now there's a guy who's been to some interesting places. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd forgotten that Switzerland was very late to the UN yeah. party. I'd Is that a neutrality that. thing? But yes, because they just didn't bother with stuff, did they? The old Swiss, just like, oh, we're Switzerland. Yeah, that was their attitude. 
you know, though, you know, League of Nations was there. Yeah. So, but well, I suppose they that. Their fingers burned. Seen in... <laughs> By the League of Nations. <laughs> they're not only part of the next thing. <laughs> League of Nations didn't last long. They're yeah. waiting for the UN to peter out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mo- most most probably but switzerland is is an odd country in so many ways because it is quintessentially european in lots of ways because they speak german french italian and romance there so you have key you know three key western european language groups there so you feel it's quintessentially european in that regard but They've never got involved since, like, what, the 15th century with any of the conflicts. So they just quietly just do their own thing with their cuckoo clocks and with their chocolate and whatever. And, Private uh, bank they, accounts. They, they feel very – yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the fact that um, every man has, like, three guns or something or another. Yeah, so – and also they're very late to the um, female um, – Emancipation. Well, yeah, you're like, the, what's, what was it, the 1970s yeah. when women in Switzerland got the vote? Terrible, terrible, terrible. Anyway, Switzerland, funny flag, funny country, and uh, we know little about it considering it's you know at the heart of Europe, so to speak. Um, but yes, so the thing is about the Palestinian territories, they do have observer status, and I believe the Vatican does as well, if not full UN um status i'm not googling this. this is purely from memory obviously taiwan doesn't count even though to all intents and purposes it is its own country and has diplomatic relations around the world though the number the number is whittling down because they claim to be um the original government of china and actually they actually are the the successor of the kuomintang that's taiwan and when the communists took over mainland china they they, they fled the government fled to taiwan and set up a rival government. And there is this diplomatic battle uh, between the two Chinas because uh, no country recognises both diplomatically. And I think there's approximately 20, 25 countries that recognise Taiwan as still being the, the, you know, the national government of China. But the Taiwan government pays them for it because they want that level of recognition. So there are some Caribbean islands and some countries in Africa and in South America or, or Central America who who flip because um, they get paid by one side or the other. Mm. You know, here, you know, we're going to build you a nice, nice new road and here's like $10 million, recognise us as a government of China. So I know some countries have gone kind of backwards and forwards. So it's, it's, that in and of itself is utterly fascinating. But... Vatican City does have some level of UN recognition. Ditto um, the Palestinian territories, which I think is just observer status, so that would count, though they're not full members. So I, strictly speaking, think that my old old rules do still uh, stand up, but the whole thing about Switzerland is a massive anomaly. And as Ken very rightly pointed out, you are not defined by the number of play, number of places you've been to you can still be a very valid map corner member regardless of whether you've been anywhere at all you just have to look enjoy the maps that is true that is true and what i haven't done but i will do before the next uh, episode the next blockbusting map corner episode is to actually dig out that list uh, find that list of national days all around the world so um you can 
You can be a Bolivia if you want, or a Cameroon. So we yes. will do that. So um, starting from a couple of shows time, you'll be able to declare when you call in, I am a Papua New Guinean and whatever, and then get on with your call. Um, is that all the calls, that is all are, the calls. But actually that leads us on to some of the discussion about what's been out there on the social media, because we actually did have someone contact us on the um Twitter hashtag Map Corner hashtag Map Corner to mm. say mm-hmm. that so it's Bart Buscots Buscots um, who found that his birthday didn't coincide with a national day anywhere and he's feeling a bit lonely so I think you know we'll have to get that list out so that people can find the thing that's nearest to them and then you can have a pick if it's not an actual day you can mm-hmm. take a pick for something else but thinking about this logically right 365 days in the year. There's 192, 93 countries, yeah. right? So those are the, so just about every, well, not, not just about every country, even England, who, though we don't have an Independence Day, you have a Saints Day. And then within England, within Britain, sorry, there are four different Saints Days. So we've got to be able to find um, not even just a day close to you. And I imagine there might be similar things for sort of regions. I would, I mean, I'm just thinking from when I lived in Spain, I'm willing to bet Andalusia has an Andalusia day and Castile has a Castile day and Galicia has a Galicia mm. day. I wouldn't be surprised if they, had, or they had a patron saint, which had a saint's day. And that might well be true of other parts of yeah. the world as well. Very true. Uh, also on Twitter, a little bit more action on the map corner hashtag uh, this month. Uh, so I didn't feel quite so lonely there. So thank you for that. Um, we had a beautiful map from Catherine <laughs> Rowan Jones, which showed overlaid different routes of the Mississippi. I don't know if you saw this one. Um, I don't know whether or not it looks more like colourful snakes or possibly a complicated picture of someone's intestines. <laughs> but um, either way, it's actually a lot more beautiful than either of those descriptions <laughs> uh, would imply. Uh, it was a really beautiful um, painted uh, painted map, uh, and then Aura Fanny on Aura Fanny Pants uh, posted a map that showed average waiting times for Europe for hitchhikers. So depending on where you're hitchhiking in Europe, how long you're likely to wait. I don't know where the data has come from, which I think uh, I think it came it's one of Simon Kustomaka's ones who says, I don't know where they're getting this data from, but um, it implies that if you want to go hitchhiking in Europe, Ireland's a good place to do it. Uh, and Spain, not so good. And interestingly enough, in the England, or in Britain especially, but in England, um, the bit of England that there was least kind of helpful to hitchhikers we had to wait the longest was there any idea what this might be none whatsoever okay so it's the northwest so all across sort of merseyside top of north wales sort of manchester liverpool that kind of area mm. and that you know given that they're supposed to have a reputation for being slightly more friendly people and i'd have thought it'd be the you know cheerless southeastern folks who have got no time for anyone that would <laughs> you know, be refusing to pick you up but there you go uh whether whether or not that just confounds the local stereotypes or whether it uh um tells us something we didn't know i don't know but that's an interesting uh comparison of hitchhiking times and then um 
I'm going to come back to Lexi because she sent a, or he, I'm assuming it's a she, uh, sent a list, uh, a link to some um, historic maps. But one of those is going to be my map of the month. So I'll come back to that at the end of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then uh, moving across to Facebook, uh, some of the favourites on our, there's obviously a lot more action on our Facebook page and our Facebook group. Uh, some of the fun stuff that was there was uh, Stephen Bowden, who posted some pictures around sort of maps which represent different European countries as animals. Um, and that's in response to the conversation we sort of kicked off around sort of national or local stereotypes. And, I mean, some of these are very traditional. So the idea of Russia as a bear, for example. Um, What was interesting about one of those was, I think, I don't know, I couldn't see it very well from the picture, but it looked like France was being represented by a camel, which I don't know if it's the French Foreign Legion or something else. But that was was a bit unexpected because, obviously, I guess we would, I don't know what animal you would uh, associate with France. Cockerel. Cockerel. It's a cockerel. Well... I didn't see a cockerel. I saw a camel, but there you go. Maybe I'm wrong. (laughs) Um, A camel in Napoleonic boots. God knows. Um, But uh, yeah, so it's an interesting mixture of uh, different, uh, yeah, different animals and um, caricatures, if you like. Uh, So, yeah. Uh, And then um, I really enjoyed um, Cynthia Larson's post, which was just a photo of a whole box of old maps that she'd found lying around. (laughs) And I'm sure we can all uh, um, empathise with that. I'm sure that many of our listeners and ourselves have somewhere got a whole heap of old maps that we might have used for a holiday once, sort of 10 or 15 years ago, and they've never been able to throw away or, or pass on, and we gradually accumulate all this stuff. Um, I know I've got a number of old maps for places I don't live anymore or places I went once, Um you're you're an international sort of travelling sort, so maybe you travel like Royfield and you don't have this phenomenon. Um, but I bet there are a lot of people who are listening who do. Was it, was that a question or a statement? Well, I was pontificating, but you might want to comment. Well, no, I just I was just listening to you. I was just entranced by you, just like taking over the the, the reins of the podcast, and I was actually quite enjoying it. Actually, <laughs> I'm here sipping my water, you know. With I don't don't put you off your stride here, Claire, but with me trousers off because it's so bloody hot. <laughs> right, I just uh, tuning into the Claire Ashby podcast. That's too much so you, information. <laughs> so you just talk away, Mrs. I'm I'm quite happy. So that, I'll just take it that that was not All a question; right. it was just a statement. And uh, move on to your next point. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, Mia Fox shared a language map one, and we'll have to come back to some of these. And mm. um, again, I kind of, uh, I think this might be one of the ones. Oh, actually, I think this one's come off the uh, Reddit site, but this was a map of the word for thank you um, across Europe oh, and how yeah. that was the same and different in different places. Um, but there are lots of those uh, similar maps, and I think some of the some of the language maps are going to be really interested to to feature in a in a future episode. Um, and then uh, I, I really want to give a shout out to to my runner up, if you like, for for map of the month, which was um, posted on Facebook by Pat, R- Pat Ralph Hanavan. Um, and this is there's a people map of the US that was posted on the Facebook group. And then I put it into the Twitter feed, which was uh, the same map, but for the UK. And this is a map which shows you the most 
wikipedia name for every individual place uh, and it's fascinating to see not just what who's from where or who's some some of these people have notoriety rather than fame or or, or history or whatever um but you know somehow they've been connected to a location um and have connect you know have have a have a link to there sometimes because they're there from there or they were famous there uh and and sometimes completely inexplicably so um that's definitely one to look at you can spend ages scrolling around in that one if you're in the um US then you can see all the people's who've been Wikipedia'd in your local neck of the woods. And I very much did the same for um, the UK one. I found a, a, a famous, well, I use the words loosely, uh, historian who lives in my village, who I've never heard of. Um, and then uh, for Bedford, which is my hometown, it was uh, the very famous Carol Vorderman, who was born in Bedford, actually, <laughs> and lived here for about six days or something and then moved to Wales I think uh, so um, uh, she's originally born uh, in the town but uh, I can't say she was famously from the town so that was uh, so that was a, a summary of the the Facebook going back to Mia's um, map of European mapping of the word thank you there's a great podcast called Lexicon Valley which I do uh, big up whenever I can Generally, it's on dum dum But one of the things that Lexicon Valley does um, is to explain how the root of how languages actually evolve. And there's an interesting link between um, the understanding of um, the study of languages and, the la- and language groups and actually fairy tales, which is actually the Brothers Grimm. Mm-hmm. that it was those two in the early 19th century that started to map out languages. And you see on that map, there's lots of uh, words for, for thank you that begin with a D. Then, of course, in so like Danke in Germany. Mm-hmm. And then it's thank you in in English. And what they managed to, to work out was how uh, consonants and vowels shifted but they actually still had the same root. So when you know that, danka sounds like thank, dank, thank. You, you can actually hear hear the root and you see the map and, and you realise that the majority of European languages, the vast majority, do have this kind of common ancestry because you say the words quickly enough or slowly enough sometimes and they do then start to sound the same. And obviously you can see all the the patterns of the Slavonic languages and you know, it looks very yeah. similar. But um, if there is a, a podcast which you should not necessarily switch off Matt Corner for, but, you know, wait till you get to the end, then then go download it, Lexicon Valley. And that, uh, the guy who does it, John McQuirter, oh, my God, funny, engaging, just utterly brilliant. And then he's totally on top of his subject matter as well so lexicon valley if you're interested in languages excellent uh are we just about at the end of this claire i think we are i'm going to tell you what my map of the month is oh drum roll 
<laughs> I'll insert <laughs> it's it in as a sound effect. dramatic music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so this was um, prompted by Lexi, who tweeted to the Map Corner hashtag about the David Rumsey map collection, which has been um, kind of digitised and made available and this is a collection of thousands and thousands of historic maps. And I had a little scoot around in that collection. And I found a map made maker by the name of Ignace Ignace Gaston Pardis, um, who was a French uh, map maker um, in the 17th century. And he he made maps of the heavens, constellations, and they are the most beautiful, beautiful things. They're like, really, they're works of art. Um, they don't look like any constellation map I've ever really seen. Uh, they are very figurative. They've got pictures of centaurs and birds and special fish and uh, all sorts of uh, things that represent, obviously, the different uh, constellations. Um uh, but they're just amazing things. And actually, what's also interesting is how that they've been able to show them in different views. Uh, so you could make up yourself a little mm. cube with to represent the various constellations. There's, and there's one that I really liked, which was presented in a sort of star projection which I'm not sure was done by the original map maker or whether it's been done with their, with their map subsequently. Um, but that's really uh, a beautiful thing to look at. Um, and just, yeah, as a piece of art, really, um, just very evocative of its time. So that's my map of the month. Awesome. And uh, we'll put that in the, in the show notes, shall we? Absolutely, yeah. Fab. All right. So that's just... That's us just about done for this month. Uh, we'll see you all again next month, but don't forget. So if you go onto the show notes, you'll see the link for our great new app where you can not only chat uh, with other Map Corner aficionados, but also listen to the show. So it's, uh, it's a great thing to behold. So it's mapcorner.space is our website. Go on there, get on, get on to SpeakPipe. And of course, we've got the Flick app, we've got the Facebook group, and we have the hashtag Map so um we'll uh, look forward to your contributions because without you it's just me and claire prattling on about stuff and that's not that entertaining because as she says she's pretty boring <laughs> Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.